1: No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And the to... Oscar goes to...
2: Jet. My only object in being here
1: is to try
0: and get at
2: the truth. Where shall I go? What shall I do? He's looking at you, kid. Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. I could have been a
0: contender. Fasten your... I could have been somebody.
2: They can only kill me with a golden bullet. What have I done? Call me Mr. Tibbs. you am gonna make him an awful kid. All oh, real, man. Love, love is... It is love. Too weak a word. for back. I know you. Love. I, loathe you. No, I loathe you. I love you. I did as a saw. Don't laugh! If there's something
0: wrong, it's wrong with the instructions. This ain't reality TV. Respect it and validate it. Remember that you told me. It's time, Robbie. Welcome to the next Best Picture Podcast. It's time. Hello, dear listeners, episode four of Next Best Picture Podcast. I am your host, Matt Neglia. And before I introduce Will and Michael here, I want to just take a moment to discuss a couple of different things really quickly. First of all, I want to just say thank you to everybody who has contributed to making the podcast a rousing success. We have heard your voices loud and clear Two hours might be a little long for a podcast, so we're going to try and keep today's agenda a little short. We're going to run down the current state of the Oscar race. We're going to do our review of The Magnificent Seven, directed by Antoine Fuqua, starring Denzel Washington, and we're going to just leave it at that. We'll answer a couple questions, discuss a few trailers, should be a fun episode overall, but enough of me yapping right now. Let's get Michael and Will in here. Will? How you doing this morning? I'm doing fantastic. What's up everybody? and Michael hey, how's it going uh, it's it's going well uh, will you and I last night we had' a, we, we, we each had a night didn't we? Yeah yeah you can say that definitely say that. Uh, how, how you doing this morning? you got your
1: coffee already? um yeah today is definitely a coffee morning for sure. <laughs>
0: So to put it in the context here, I was at a wedding last night. Will, you were at a birthday party. Michael, what were you doing last night?
2: I was homesick last night, which I know sounds just as exciting as everything else. But
0: (laughs) (laughs) out of curiosity, did you at least watch anything while you were homesick?
2: I did. I watched one of my favorite movies over again. I saw When Harry Met Sally, which I can't even tell you how many times I've seen that movie. Classic. I could probably quote the whole thing.
1: Once again, indulging your Rob Reiner obsession. Yes, (laughs) (laughs)
0: I I, I absolutely adore that movie I think that that film is so well paced I think the writing is just it's so ahead of its time from when it did come out I feel like nowadays that seems like right in the hipster wheelhouse so to speak but at the time when that came out, what was that, 91 or so?
1: No, it was like 87, 88 or something, it was even earlier
0: 89 Wow 89, yeah how, that's just incredible what a, what a fantastic movie Billy Crystal's uh, most likable performance I, I think if I had to take a guess
2: yeah, he, he's wonderful it's, that, that would have been a best picture nominee uh, if I ran things over at the academy yeah, it's just brilliant.
0: <laughs> if you ran things over at the Academy, indignation would be winning 11 Oscars right now. It'd
1: be some weird taste if you ran the Academy,
0: Mike. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that weird. Remember, his his uh, viewpoint skewers towards the average Academy voter, right? Yeah, that
1: is
2: very you are you are the uh, you are the distinctive like classic old school. Just episode. put it this way, you would see Mamma Mia as best picture nominee over the Dark Knight in 2008. Oh god. If I ran the Academy,
0: Sully is the best film of the year oh my god did you see tom hanks i'm just saying that i'm mimicking like an older female academy you sound like
2: edward norton in sausage party
0: (laughs) (laughs) you guys why can't we just you know get along (laughs) he was so good doing that woody allen impression in that movie anyways um couple little tidbits here uh, before we just start off. I want to just pay tribute really quickly to Curtis Hansen, who tragically passed away this week at age 71. Uh, from what I understand, it looks to have been a heart attack. And he leaves behind a legacy of films, which uh, include L.A. Confidential, Wonder Boys, 8 Mile, in Her Shoes, the television film Too Big to Fail, and many, many more. Not necessarily an auteur director, more so a, I think, studio for a higher director, if anything, but those films that I just listed off right there alone, any director would be proud to have made those films and contributed those to society, so I want to just salute Curtis Hanson, and may he rest in peace. You guys uh, have any thoughts on uh, his passing this week?
1: Yeah, Ellie Confidential is... In my top three of all time and for a long period was my favorite film of all time um, I was beyond devastated by this I wrote a lot of my college application essays on Edmund Exley's character in that film it is just so in inle- he is so endlessly fascinating and a lot of that is due to Curtis Hansen. it's he never made anything to that level again though he was an excellent director when he made stuff but you know, his adaptation is masterful. It's one of the rare times he improved on a great book. And the film is a whole other league, and even author James Elroy admits that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty devastated.
2: Yeah, I think L.A. Confidential is by far his most accomplished film. But when you look at his filmography, there's some really eclectic titles in there, like uh, Wonder Boys, which I think is wa- a wonderful film, and uh, The River of Wild, of course, with Meryl Streep and Kevin Bacon.
0: Oh, yeah, that's good.
2: There's one towards the end of his career that I really, really love, and I think it's an underrated gem called In Her Shoes with Cameron Diaz and Charlie MacLaine.
0: I saw a lot of people commenting on Twitter about how that film, like you said, is underrated and definitely deserves to be more appreciated. That's for sure.
2: Yeah, that should have gained some uh, acting traction in the 2005 uh, Oscar race. I think it's really well done. And uh, it's very sad. He actually had a type of dementia that was so rare that you don't even know you're diagnosed with it, apparently. Curtis Hansen? Yes.
1: Oh, I, oh, that's awful. Wow. Uh, and uh, didn't Terry Jones recently get diagnosed with dementia as well when,
0: on Monty yeah, Python? Yeah, uh, a lot of people reported that the other day. It's it's really sad to hear something like that. Monty Python crew, are just all of them are legendary. And to hear the news of something like that just... Breaks your heart time and time again whenever you hear something like this. Um, we also had, oh my gosh, we're, we're starting this off on a really, really downer note here. Uh, Radio Rahim, unfortunately, uh, uh, Bill, Bill Nunn, uh, age 61, I believe? 62? Uh, 62, I think. 62, yeah. Unfortunately, he passed away yesterday uh, at the time of this recording here. And a lot of people definitely gave a lot of really, really moving tributes to him, uh, most notably coming from uh, Spike Lee. I don't know if you guys saw his Instagram post on, uh, on the actor and his contributions to the character of Radio Rahim in Do the Right Thing. So this, is, this has not been a good week. It's, it's been a bad year, actually, all around. <laughs> We've lost so many great people in this industry this year. And I think
1: it'll continue as the year goes. The uh, the In Memoriam segment at the Oscars this year is going to basically be an entire just chunk of the show. You know, commercial break happens, mm. come back to the show, In Memoriam, back out. It is going to be a brutal moment. So
0: Yeah. Well, uh, glad that we were able to uh, get you guys to keep listening right now because clearly that was the most uplifting conversation of the week. But speaking of uplifting... I want to move over to some awards talk here. I want to talk about what's going on with La La Land.
2: I just want to say, too, that so many people over the years have been wishing this for me. Strangers, you know, I go, I went walking in the street, people say something to me. I go in a doctor's office. I go in a whatever. Elevators, people saying, I wish you should win. You should win. I go for an x-ray. You should win one.
0: So La La Land won Tiff's Audience Award. And this is a very, very big deal because I believe the... Past winners, uh, most of the time, they go on to either be nominated for Best Picture and, m- some of the time, even win. So this could be a very, very clear clear in- uh, indication that La La Land is heading for big and great things. And I definitely expect it's not the last award it's going to win during this season.
1: It's not the uh, Best Picture correlator it used to be, though. I was, I was looking at the history only three of the last 10 best picture, or TIFF audience award winners have actually won best picture. So it's uh, my only concern about La La Land is that when it's doing things like this, I mean, a film does often suffer from being the front runner so early, you know, and like it didn't kill spotlight last year. It didn't kill 12 years of slave, you know, three years ago, but it'll be interesting to see what impact this has because there can be backlash in a situation like this.
2: Yeah, I was listening to Anne Thompson's podcast the other day from IndieWire, and she was saying that when a film like this has such hype, the Academy members see it, and they're all hyped up, and then they leave a bit disappointed because it didn't live up to their expectations. And apparently that's what's been happening with this. It started to screen for some Academy members, and a few of them respect it, but they don't think it's like the masterpiece that people are coming out of festivals saying it is.
0: And that's exactly what derailed Boyhood a couple of years ago against Birdman. I mean, I was one of those people. I was going to everybody saying that Boyhood was a masterpiece, that I had never seen anything like it, that it was a cinematic experience unlike any other I had had before. And then when people saw the movie, they were like, "Eh, that was a little long, two and a half hours of kind of nothing
1: yeah no i
0: mean like i completely and i think
1: also you know it is probably for the uh you know like 60 something old white male academy voter mason's grading angst is probably not the thing they were going to relate to the most i don't think that will apply to la la land though like i think this will be more of a i mean a Regardless, more of an enjoyable film, I don't think it'll quite run into what probably Boyhood did with certain members of the branch.
2: Mm, I did hear that skewers was younger, though. Yeah, I was just about to say that it might uh, not be a turnoff, but turn some people away from the idea of a modern musical. I don't know, they might be thinking like an old school style, and then they see this modern thing, and some of the old school Academy members might not fall for that the way that uh, journalists coming out of festivals will.
0: I also want to bring this up. This is very, very important, I feel like. I know that it's still technically a tad bit early, but we're starting to head into a very, very important phase here where a front runner does need to be established. There does need to be sort of a texture given to this race right now. And you know, like when you look at the Best Picture nominees when they announce them, and you can already tell which of the nine let's say nominees are not going to win not a shot in chance in hell oh yeah I, I i know that people are talking about things like oh manchester by the sea could win it's like stop no absolutely not I, i'm sorry but like a film like manchester by the sea is not going to win best picture to me right now realistically if i take a step back Of the films that we know of, the only three films I think could win Best Picture right now at this current time, and also, by the way, this is also sight unseen, but this is all just going based off of public perception uh, and also critical reception from people that have seen it, I would say it's Moonlight, La La Land, and yes, I'm still holding out hope for this, Silence. I know that everyone thinks it ain't coming out this year, but those are the only three films that when I take a step back and I look at everything that they have going for them, I think are the only three that actually have a realistic shot. No- nothing else to me screams that it will be the winner. It'll be nominated, sure.
1: If Billy Lynn is, if Billy Lynn ends up being really well-received, it, it could be...
0: A, I could see it as a winner, too. I highly doubt it, and I say this only because... It's, you know, I, I'm, I'm going to just chalk it up to a, a gut feeling. I have a sinking gut feeling that Billy Lynn is going to be well-received. It's going to definitely wow people as far as the frame rate goes. And yours truly is going to get the first taste of that. I was lucky enough to actually acquire a ticket for the world premiere screening at the New York Film Festival. So I will gladly let you guys know how that goes. But... At the end of the day here, I don't see Ang Lee winning another best director Oscar. I don't see the film winning adapted screenplay over some of the other contenders that are in this race right now, like Fences, for example, which we're still waiting for that trailer on. And no one even knows who this Lead actor Joe Alwyn is, you know, he's gonna come out of nowhere. You're telling me that he's gonna give a performance that's gonna be better than Denzel, Casey Affleck, or uh, even Nate Parker, who I still think is part of the conversation. But you
2: can't judge based on the name, it's the performance that counts. No.
0: Yeah, but there's nothing in the trailer that suggests, yeah, I mean,
1: like, that. look at Jean Dujardin a couple years back with the artist. I mean, he was, did you know that name before 2011? And then he just caked walk
2: to the oscar no but he did win
0: best actor at the Cannes film festival though didn't he didn't he
2: not true well uh, i sort of disagree about manchester by the sea like i have it at my number two right now and i think it's definitely going to go over very well with academy members
0: well enough to be nominated not well enough to win uh, both that and moonlight are
1: described as such quiet small films though i mean like it, it, People who I've talked to who have seen both say they're wonderful, great films, both almost certain to be nominated, but not the type that wins Best Picture. And I think Moonlight will be an, an important film as well, but I have to disagree with you, Matt. I don't think it's, from what I'm hearing, it's it's like a very, I think the film was described as like soft, not in a negative sense, um, just like it's it's a quiet film. It's not, you know you got to go like big and relatively unsubtle, typically, to win with Ampus, uh, and there needs to be something of a scope to it. And those are two very intimate, small dramas that aren't really the type
2: that win Best Picture. They'll be some of the best-reviewed films of the year. I could see Manchester but... by the Sea playing out like The Descendants. In a few ways, and I think back in 2011, if it weren't for the artist, I think The Descendants could have been your Best Picture winner that year.
0: I still think Hugo would have taken it. I think Hugo was the number two, clearly, uh, in my
2: opinion. You can make a case for either one of them, but uh, there was a lot of love for The Descendants that year, and this is that same type of domestic drama in a couple ways from what I'm hearing. And apparently the Academy members who have seen it are very pleased with it so far, and that's also a screener title that'll play well at home. So you never know, uh, but I wouldn't write it off just yet.
0: Well, let's let's ask a couple of different questions here. Uh assuming that La La Land wins the comedy musical Golden Globe, what wins for drama? I mean, that's the bottom line is until we
1: know more about Fences and Silence. That's that's a tough call. I mean, I I yeah, Silence is going to come out this year,
2: but one of those, or Billy Lynn, I guess. Michael? If I'm going to make a random guess now, I would go with Manchester by the Sea.
0: All right, and then let me ask you this question, guys. Which film do you think will be the most critically well-reviewed film of the year that stands a chance to win the Critics' Choice Award for Best Picture then?
1: I don't think the Critics' Choice will necessarily go to the best, the overall critically best-received film of the year. You know, often it try that award ends up being the let's predict who's winning the Oscar award as opposed to uh and let's bear in mind critics choice is dropping early this year you know it's some of the stuff some of the late breakers like silence likely won't even have been seen by the
0: time those nominations are announced just like the revenant wasn't last year yeah but if you look at the past winners as well there's definitely a correlation between the film being the most well-reviewed film of the year and also the Best Picture frontrunner. The last time that we had a divisive film actually win Best Picture that got a bashing from critics was, what, Crash?
1: Well, yeah, but I I mean, like, the bottom line is, I mean, you look at 2012, Argo was well-reviewed, but it wasn't, like, best of the year reviewed, and it won the critics' choice. I mean, often they try to go with kind of what is the prevailing best picture frontrunner.
0: I don't know, man. 96% of Rotten Tomatoes.
1: Yeah, but it was, I mean, it was very well, I'm not saying it was divisive. I'm saying it wasn't the best reviewed film of the year. And I think something quieter like Moonlight or Manchester by the Sea will end up with one of those like 98, 99 percentages on Rotten Tomatoes, but um, won't necessarily be the big film this season that ends up winning with Critics' Choice or
2: the Oscar. Yeah, I agree. I see something like La La Land or something that's able to connect with the group winning at an award like Critics' Choice, but in terms of what's the best reviewed film of the year, I could see that going to Moonlight or even Manchester by the Sea again.
0: Yeah, and and now let's ask this question. This is going to be a lot of fun here. Give me your Rotten Tomatoes
2: prediction for The Birth of a Nation. I'm gonna say seventy-eight percent.
1: Yeah, I would I would say mid to high seventies. You know, now there are more and more people coming out who are criticizing certain aspects of the film, as we've pointed out. I guess last week, you know, someone saying it makes a lot of rookie director mistakes, but it does sound like it packs a
0: punch. So, do we think that Nate Parker still has a chance in the Best Actor field? Because from everything that I've heard so far. Uh, his producing credit, directing credit, writing and acting credit, he stands the best chance to be nominated for actor as, they, as most people say that his performance in this is just
2: phenomenal. What do you guys think? He's still in my nomination predictions for sure. Yeah, I don't have, been, have him in the five, but I mean, it could happen. It's a stretch, but I'm not going to rule anything out yet. I will say this, Michael, you did convince me
0: to put Tom Hanks in for Sully.
2: Yeah, that movie's really been cleaning up the box office. It's almost become like a cultural sensation at the moment right now. I
0: wouldn't go that far, but it is definitely,
1: I mean, it it is a success story. And as we saw with The Martian last year, you know, like, a film that is well-received but not straight-up raved, if it makes a lot of money at the box office, which Sully is doing, that can go a long way for its nomination prospects. So, yeah, I, I still have Hanks just missing out, but... The voters will love that film, and more than that, they'll
0: love the fact that it made money. So I think the acting races for um, actor and supporting actor are so weak compared to the bill races this year. I struggled to create a Best Actor lineup that consists of Affleck, Andrew Garfield, Washington, Hanks, and Parker currently, where with Best Actress, I'm pulling my hair out trying to figure out who to keep in and who to keep out. I mean, the... Teaser for Miss Sloan Drop, Jessica Chastain looks like she's on fire in that movie. Roof Nega has gotten a lot of positive notices. Uh, Amy Adams is having a hell of a year. And Portman uh, and Stone seem to be, I think, right now, the sure things as far as the nomination goes. And despite everything that we're hearing, we're still a little bit on the fence. Get it? Fence? Yeah. <laughs> Knee slapper about Viola Davis in fences going lead or supporting i think she's going lead 100 percent here um and i don't believe any of the chatter that's necessarily happening but there's chatter regardless so i don't know guys best actress and best supporting actress right now just seems so stacked to me
2: you think best supporting actress is stacked
0: i would say supporting actress is uh
1: I, kind of a wasteland if some of the if there if there's no category fraud if Amy Adams or viola
0: oh Davis there will be category fraud, don't you worry?
1: Yeah, I think Adams will likely go supporting for nocturnal animals for what I'm hearing that is definitely category fraud well, do you think she gets double
0: nominee then
1: no, I think she ends up missing out in lead if she does that. It's just so stacked i don't I, yeah i I think a rival. As well-received as it is, I'm no longer
2: certain how well the Academy is going to take to it. And then for Best Supporting Actor, you said that was a little empty. I have about 15 names here that I could see getting in in a different combination.
1: But none of them seem undeniable. I mean, we we have yet to see Neeson or know that much about his performance, but I've heard he's only got about 20 minutes of screen time. Um, We haven't seen the guys from Fences. There's a couple who could be in there. I mean, Lucas Hedges can get in with kind of a classic uh, semi category fraud performance. Um, Hugh Grant, definitely for a category fraud. I mean, he's more of a. He has more screen time than Meryl Streep, but he's going to go supporting. You're missing
2: one, Will. Who? Steven, Steven Henderson? Warren Beatty for Rules don't oh, Apply. Oh, my God. Freaking hell. We're going hell. back
0: to this. I don't believe it. I, I refuse. No way. No way.
2: It's going to happen. Marchalle Ali as well for <sighs> Moonlight. Also, I'm hearing Dev Patel for Lion is quite good. He might go lead though. i no, he, like they're it, all going supporting. Why? It's an ensemble piece. But it's isn't in Flashback Isn't it his story though? Yeah, but it's like Slumdog Millionaire where he doesn't he doesn't take up the whole character. It's split. Oh, wow. He ran supporting for Slumdog. So I mean
0: like which is ridiculous to me, in hindsight. Really? It is. Oh, I
2: think he was definitely supporting.
0: I I totally disagree. I think that that was his movie. Uh, you got to remember, the film's, the film's framing device for its narrative takes place from his perspective, sitting in the chair during the game show. And that's the storyline that's also taking place in the present day. He's the lead of that film.
1: Yeah, I mean, and going back to your point, um, Mike, I mean, Beatty is beloved, and you saw there, I mean, you pointed out, that they're doing kind of a, uh, a huge tribute for him. Was it in. Uh, I think it was Santa Barbara. Yeah, the Santa, in Santa Barbara. I mean, they're definitely revving up
2: something of an Oscar campaign for him. I just think that film was going to crash and burn. I've heard from somebody who has seen it that it's quite good.
0: Hmm. All right. We'll have to wait and see here. Uh, We got a couple of films that um, are going to be released next week. Well, actually not next week necessarily, but in the coming weeks to come at the New York Film Festival. Uh, We've got 20th Century Women from Mike Mills, which should be coming out, Uh, Annette Benning in the lead role here. We've also got The Lost City of Z uh, with Charlie Hunnam from Sons of Anarchy fame. And we also have the 13th documentary uh, by Ava DuVernay of Selma, which I think we all loved, if I recall correctly. And what else do we have coming? Oh, of course, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk is going to be a very, very big deal for sure.
2: And then a lot of holdovers from Ken. We have L playing there and Tony Erdman. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have Manchester by Sea
0: will be there. Moonlight will be there. Um, there's definitely a lot of films that are coming out, but the big one definitely is... Billy Lynn's long halftime walk. Question for you guys, though: If there is a surprise screening, what do you guys think that will be?
1: Are there rumors of a surprise screening? There's always rumors of a surprise screening. Okay, yeah, my uh, my guess would be Hidden Figures, since they, uh, you know, it's kind of debuting late in the festival circuit. Is is it a AFI? Is that where it's going? No, I don't know that it's announced anything. I know it's got a Christmas Day
0: release date.
1: Yeah, if it doesn't have, it's particularly if it doesn't already have a festival slot. Um, yeah, I could definitely see it being the one. And they screened, you know, bits and pieces of it at TIFF a few weeks back. And I, maybe the reason they did that is they had a deal with New York. So I think that's possible.
2: Yeah, uh, I don't know. I, I think they've gone, what is it now? Two or three years without an advanced screening. What was the last big one they had? Lincoln.
0: Uh, yeah, Lincoln. I definitely seem to recall because uh, I think Life of Pi was the film that they uh, the showcased. A few years yes, ago. yeah, that was one they advertised. I th- and I, if I remember correctly, I think Lincoln did surprise there. If my memory serves me right, I
1: think Lincoln. No, I think Lincoln. It had footage, but it didn't officially drop until AFI.
2: No, it, there was a, there was a full screening at uh, New York. Uh, Hugo, I remember. Uh, Had a surprise screening, which makes me
0: wonder if Silence, maybe there could be like a rough cut version of it. Yeah. Or at least maybe just some footage, finally. I I would kill for some footage. I just want to see what we have to look forward to with this film here. Because as soon as you tell me over three hours of Martin Scorsese, and it's a period piece, it's like, just, oh my god, yeah, just bring it on. I'm ready for this, you know? So it's really really tough to tell right now uh and speaking of tough to tell really quickly at this point in the season if you had to predict right now who's winning best director who do you guys have i think chazelle absolutely
1: it's it's a flashy film and flashy usually does well here you don't see splits unless it's something that's pretty subtly directed like spotlight so
2: yeah i think i think chazelle has this in the bag if his film wins best picture I'm not ready to make a formal call, but I think at the moment, from what we've seen, uh, yeah, it looks like it could be Damien Chazelle.
0: Okay, and we have a question here from Prada of the Night goes by K Bailey uh, Java Java, yeah, K Bailey Java Two on Twitter. Which Best Director winner will win again? So Chazelle, obviously first time nominee. If he gets in for La La Land, first time winner. I wonder, based upon previous directors that have won, obviously I'm not going to say Alejandro gonzalez Yari too. He's already won uh, two. (laughs) Um, That's a tough one of who I think could win another Best Director trophy. I think Scorsese stands the best chance of anybody. Yeah. Because I think that they, the Academy just absolutely adores him.
1: I think he was probably close in... uh in 2011 for Hugo. I mean, not enough that he via- anyone was going to beat Hazen but yeah, I think, and if not him, then um, Cuaron down the line, or... Um, Spielberg. Yeah, Spielberg yeah, could do Yeah, I was just going to say
2: Steven Spielberg. I think he could do a third, even if it's in the form of a Gene Herschel humanitarian award. That didn't count.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Spielberg definitely could. I mean, he probably was in second place in
2: 2012 for Lincoln. Oh, agreed, Michael. Yeah, Steven Spielberg is my choice here. Alrighty,
0: and then another question from Twitter, also from Matt Saint Clair, film guy six one nine. If you had to pick a typically supporting actor or actress to get more lead roles, who would it be? Um, I will come right out and say right now, I would love to see J.K. Simmons in the lead role of something.
2: Uh, Ben Mendelsohn. Ooh, great choice. I love seeing her in character actor roles, but I would really love maybe for Margaret Martindale to get something uh, more substantial and even a nomination in the future.
0: Oh, and you know who I really, really liked in the early 2000s and a lot of lead roles, and I wish that she could just go back to them again? Uh, I really want to see Laura Linney take a project by storm she's again.
1: always great yeah
0: she's just so consistently good uh she she's definitely in my opinion not standing a chance in any of the races this year i know some people had her in for nocturnal animals but that seems to have dissipated so an- another year another time for miss laura linney uh we had a trailer drop this week for fence oh wait no Sorry guys, fences did not drop (sighs) But the lucky
1: people who did get it with their Magnuson Seven screening said it's a great I didn't
0: I didn't either I did not (laughs) But apparently some people did I was so disappointed by that Anyways, trailer for Passengers dropped, Morton Tildum's latest film of the imitation game Fame And that film stars Chris Pratt, Jennifer Lawrence, this here is the trailer for Passengers Hello Is he asking me on a date?
1: She didn't seem that impressed.
0: Wow. You clean up pretty good yourself.
1: You two look fine this evening.
0: We're on a date. Very nice. Took you long enough to ask. So,
1: why did you give up your life on Earth?
2: boarded the Avalon with a destination. 120 years hibernation means a wake up in a new century on a new planet. But a year ago, everything changed.
0: Hello? Anybody here? Hello? Do you know what's going on? Nobody else is awake. I think something went wrong with the hibernation pies. We woke up too soon. Nine years too soon.
2: This can't be happening. We have to go back to sleep.
0: We can't. Aurora, we love you. Something's wrong. Something big.
1: What do we do now?
0: Do you trust me? So, I don't know about you guys, but I get the sense based on this trailer, two things. One, this is not a contender. And two, it looks like it's ripping off so many other great films to forge this film. Like, I see a ripoff of Sunshine, The Shining. There's moments that just remind me of Gravity. Solaris, Prometheus. Even seeing uh, Jennifer Lawrence in the gray... um, the gray tank top reminds me of Alien 3, Sigourney Weaver. It's, I don't know. What, what's your take on this, guys? Because me, I, I was so lukewarm on this.
1: I think it, it it is not trying to advertise itself as an Oscar contender and is trying to be a popcorn film, and that's fine. I think it might be entertaining. I certainly don't think it's going to be either a critical smash hit
2: or is certainly not an Oscar contender. I think it looks very entertaining, like Will just said, a popcorn flick, and it comes out around Christmas time, so I could definitely see this being the big holiday play of the season that people go to the movies on Christmas to see. Just the star power alone of Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence will be enough to draw people in. Yeah, people will go see it. I think I think it will actually be pretty financially successful. I could see it being like a $300 million domestic title, honestly. Like, uh, I wouldn't It go plays that far. over the holiday and through d- January. It could be very big. I could definitely see a situation where that happens.
0: I'm making a prediction right now. Uh, I'm going to predict 198 domestic.
2: Ooh, that's pretty low.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I don't see it. I don't see it break at 200 million, but... I don't expect the film to get the great reviews um, to push it in via word of mouth, but I do expect the star power to carry it a long way, at least.
1: The fact that it's still reshooting as of last week is crazy though oh
0: yeah that's that's frightening to think of
1: but yeah we 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 will see i mean i was not blown away by the trailer but it it could be entertaining
0: absolutely um speaking of a film being entertaining our review for this week is for the magnificent seven uh will you and i are going to be reviewing that michael unfortunately uh, we have to depart from what i understand um but before we let you go here, is there anything that you want to give a shout out to? Is there anything that you want to just talk about that we didn't get a chance to talk about before we head into our review of The Magnificent Seven?
2: I think that pretty much covered it all for this week. It was a very slow uh, film news week now that the festivals are over. But once next, next week happens, we have Queen of Cotway coming nationwide and Deepwater Horizon, so a few more titles. And with the New York Film Festival starting, maybe we'll have news out of there Relating not just to the Oscar season, but the film world itself. So, I'm looking forward to that.
0: Awesome, awesome. Thank you as always, and Will, let's head over into the Old West for Magnificent Seven. Sounds good.
2: All right, take care, everyone. Man carries a gun, he tends to use it.
1: Dan, you dead?
2: Pity, I had just ordered a drink from that man. Took a job, looking for some men to join me. Is it difficult? Impossible.
0: How many you got so far? You and me. (laughs) Who's she? We work for her. Good Lord.
2: That's right. That man murdered my husband. I want something. I take it. He will take everything we have. So you seek revenge. I seek righteousness, but I'll take revenge. I need more than a few to help us fight. What a bunch of misfits we are.
0: You know how to shoot that thing. I'm good. So am I. Good luck, my friend. Oh, we're good. We got a Mexican. I sense we are bonding. Oh, We got a seven? He's got an army.
1: And they'll be murdered by the world's greatest lover.
2: (laughs) Why are you here? Fighting someone else's fight. These people deserve their lives back. Just make sure we're fighting the battle in front of us, not the battle behind. Every man's got the right to choose where he dies. We have nowhere else to go, so.
1: You ain't never seen a soldier like me. Two,
0: three, I'm a Four, five, six, Looking to mine for gold, greedy industrialist Bartholomew Bogue seizes control of the west town of Rose Creek. With their lives in jeopardy, Emmer Cullen and other desperate residents turn to bounty hunter Sam Chisholm for help own recruits an electric group of gunslingers to take on Bogue and his ruthless henchmen. With a deadly showdown on the horizon, the seven mercenaries soon find themselves fighting for more than just money once the bullets start to fly. The cast includes Denzel Washington, Chris Pratt, Ethan Hawke, Vincent D'Onofrio, Byung-Hung Lee, Manuel Garcia Ruffalo, Martin, Sainsma- S- Sensma- Martin Sensmeyer, Haley Bennett, and Peter Sarsgaard. So, well, let's start off with you here. What did you think of the Magnificent Seven? Um,
1: so I am conflicted on how to approach the Magnificent Seven. On one hand, the two originals are films that didn't need to be remade, and they already they had a lot to say, a lot of heart, and that is certainly not something you can say about the remake. There is also quite a bit that didn't work in The Magnificent Seven, which as we go on, I will dig into. But in spite of myself, I did enjoy the majority of the film. Although I was not impressed with the final action set piece, or I wasn't as much as impressed as some people were with it, particularly given all the buildup they had for it, and I thought roughly 50% of the jokes landed, which isn't great. Yeah, I I will get to more of it as we go along. But yeah, I, I
0: enjoyed it. It's just not great. Yeah, I fall into a very similar camp that you do here. I think that the film is a lot of fun. It's entertaining. I think that the wide cast of characters certainly helps to give the film a unique personality to it. And it also adds a lot of dynamics, which I enjoy. But overall, there are a lot of problems with this film. Uh, first thing I want to start off with, and I don't know if you felt the same way here, the cinematography I truly felt was really boring, bland, and just ugly. Uh, there were yeah. so many dark, washed-out like images that did not... It just did not look clean to me. It was
1: murky. It was out of focus in a lot of the close-ups.
0: Yeah. And I was really surprised by how amateurish it looked in so many shots, especially the final shot of the film was terrible, in my opinion.
1: And can we go ahead and say, like, they should have ended the film a minute earlier because that voiceover coming in, I started laughing in my theater the uh, the final line where Haley Bennett says in voiceover, and on that day, those men proved they were truly magnificent. I was like, oh, God. You have this badly green screen shot with kind of off cinematography and her saying that line over it. No, no, not the way to close that film. Mercifully, no. Elmer Bernstein's classic theme popped in to
0: save the day. Oh, yeah, that was great. I was so happy to hear that theme played throughout. Um, but... I will say this, too. uh, This is also the last score that we will hear from um, the late James Horner, um, who, one of my favorite composers of all time, responsible for some of the best film scores I've ever heard. Paul 13, Titanic, Braveheart, Aliens. I mean, the guy is just... He's a legend, in my opinion, as far as film scores um, and composers go. But this unfortunately, due to the circumstances, um, is not one of his best, obviously. Um, it feels very much like an incomplete score. And that's... And listen, I'm not saying that this is like, oh, well, he shouldn't have died then. All right. I'm not saying that. Like, I'm just saying that the film score... I, I had a little bit of hype and anticipation heading into it, it being his last score, and I wanted something I wanted something that was gonna be truly memorable. And what I got was something that was okay. Um, I remember he did the score for The Mask of Zorro, which was oh, another yeah. type of um, fun action romp sort of a film. And that film score was fantastic. This film score seems like it was trying to hearken back to older Western Scores, but uh, still try to blend it with a modernized take that a lot of people have tend to put into their westerns nowadays. And it just seemed like um, it it didn't really know what it was. I mean, there's so many. There's like that that um, I don't know how to describe music that well, but kind of like this um, fading, uh, repeating trumpet sounds like, and I immediately thought of Patton when I heard that. Uh, for some odd reason or another, and other and like I said, other old film scores, it's got its moments. Don't get me wrong. And you know, there's a theme that does play. I think maybe one too many times in the film, but that's just due to the fact that there really wasn't much music to go around to begin with. I suppose.
1: Well, and also, yeah. I mean, the bottom line is Horner hadn't seen the film yet when he composed it. I mean, he did it basically. He sent. Uh, Fuqua, what he had basically is like, look at this, uh, I'm so excited for the concept. I, as I understand it, what he sent him was basically like a proof of concept almost. Mm-hmm. And there was a second composer credited, and I think probably a lot of the film's score is his. I, I Yeah, I mean, this is, I'm glad Horner got to do a Western I think I will consider James Horner's last true score to be the thirty-three last year, mm-hmm. which I don't have that much to say about that film, but that is some shockingly good music. Yeah, so I think that's what I'll keep as my final memory of James Horner.
0: Yeah, um, I, I I like that score too to a certain degree. I um, I, I would say his last true classic score uh, was Avatar. Um, yeah, which makes me want, which makes me wonder uh, who James Cameron's gonna choose to come on as Horner's successor for the sequels. Pretty sad.
1: He both he and Andrew Lesney were going to work on Hacksaw Ridge too. Yeah, uh, and they both died last year, and so at the last minute they had to replace both cinematographer and composer. But
0: I guess we're we're off on the tangent. Back to Magnificent Seven. It, yeah. Um. So the film. You know, missed the opportunity with the score, in my opinion, ugly cinematography. What did you think about Peter Sarsgaard? You know, when he first came on, I thought to myself, okay, well cast as kind of like this cowardly, sniveling weasel of an evil man. But there's not a single performance in this film that I would signal out as like definitively great here. I think everybody plays their roles in a distinct way. And as a result, you walk away from this film and everybody, I think, will have a different favorite character. Some people will say they really like Denzel. Some people will say that they liked Vincent D'Onofrio. Some people will like Chris Pratt. Uh, For me... He was so anachronistic. Yeah? He he felt way too modern, you
1: know? Like that... Felt very – whenever he spoke and like half of his
0: lines didn't land for me. That world's greatest lover line was the most cringeworthy one for me. Oh, for sure. I'm like, what? at what point have you made any mention that you are a great lover or have we seen you with another girl or something? It just seemed like such a ridiculous line because – Yeah, in fact, you saw – base. I mean –
1: they looked like they were going to set up something between him and Haley Bennett in one scene, and they just dropped that. Yeah. Um, yeah, he... Um, I love Chris Pratt. I don't think he was necessarily the best choice to star in a Western, just because he feels so 21st century. Agreed, completely. Oh, and I did not like I, I, his, I His voice... Um, i i was an intentional choice did not work for me and uh his big face off scene during the fight with the uh the Comanche mm-hmm. did not work for me i was i was laughing a little bit in the theater
0: yeah when that happened i i found his lines a little hard to decipher at times um I, I I don't know. I go back and forth on a lot of these performances here, and I ask myself, who do I really think was phenomenal? Um, I like Denzel Washington in this. I think he's a great lead man, obviously. He does not look like he's 61 years old. No. He looks like he's 41 years old leading this Western with just all the swag and charisma you could possibly imagine. Um, and I really liked the backstory that they uh, that that he has in this film, and I really did, I did feel the weight of it, and that has to do with Denzel's performance. So credit to Denzel. I mean, if you're gonna have a movie that, quite honestly, is not really all that great, might as well get a great lead actor in your ro- in your uh, leading role at
1: least. Well, and I thought you said there were no standout performances. I thought Denzel was. I mean, he's he's never been anything. Below excellent in a film, but I thought he was extremely good. He was the only really good standout in the cast. I thought.
0: Well, I, yeah, because he's Denzel, but it's not like one of Denzel's best performances or anything no. like that.
1: Yeah, for all the um, for all the talk of diversifying the cast, with the exception of a little bit for Byung Hun Lee, they basically they did add in a more diverse array of characters and a bunch of Western white guys. And then they pretty much just proceeded to focus the entire film on Denzel and the white guys.
0: So now, it's very interesting that you say that, though, because there's a couple of different things about this that I find fascinating. Uh, One of which is that there is uh, a Native American, there's a Mexican, there's a black guy, there's a woman in Haley Bennett who uh, proves to be a strong, capable woman as well. And there is, let's just say at the end of this film... I think, that you know, all these people are coming together to take out what is ultimately a big, large group of evil white men. And at the end of the film, in terms of who lives and who dies, I was wondering how intentional all of this was and how much they wanted to draw parallels to our current day society in terms of gender and race. I... Intentional, unintentional. What did you think about those parallels?
1: I don't know. Um, I don't know if that's really a rabbit hole I want to go down either. But I mean, I think it was certainly nice to see more representation on there, and it was definitely a clear. T- I know. I think it was Ann Thompson said the Magnificent Seven is can be considered an allegory for uh, for Donald Trump. <laughs> do you remember seeing that review? Because I do. That, that is. Um, you know the villain is your classic big industry evil big industrialist yeah um who does get taken down by the little man so i think there's definitely on that level uh some intentional parallels um i was also i will say in its favor i know obviously they had to kind of follow the source material but i did think it would i really a- appreciate a studio film in a year where you have more and more you know marvel films and dc films are afraid to kill off a single character or really have any lasting stakes that you had a studio film that was willing to just take out some of its biggest names in the cast. You know, I was,
0: I was, um, at least one of the people who died in the film. I was pretty surprised. Yeah. Same here as well. I really appreciated the film did that as well because it did take me, um, off guard for sure. um, Another thing that took me off guard as well, because I think I'm just so used to this based on Quentin Tarantino's uh, previous two films, is that nobody not once in the movie mentions that Denzel is black. Not once. And I wondered if that was just simply because the role as written on the page was intended for uh, a, a white actor at some point. So I was, I was definitely taken aback by that aspect of the story as well, which also leads... Um, you know, I, I guess you could say um, a little bit of credibility to there not being parallels in the story to today's modern times. Uh, it's, it walks that fine line, I guess you could say. And I, I don't know if I appreciate the film for that or if I don't appreciate it. And I say this because I feel like the film had an opportunity to go deeper and to really be a very complex, thematic telling of the story and contrasted towards our times of today. But it doesn't, really. And a lot of this is just reading into it, and you wonder to yourself, was this a missed opportunity? Should they have just gone for it, and just, you know, maybe created something that was a little bit more um, texturalized here? Well, there's a lot of meat to the
1: two original films. You know, for starters, the villain in the original, if I recall was partially only stealing from the village because his men needed to eat. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he's much more layered. The townspeople are kind of sniveling and go back to the man who's basically enslaved them willingly. Um, you know, there there's a lot more emotional complexity in the original, whereas here... And this was just trying to be a fun take on the story as opposed to really having anything to say. But in here... Either you just didn't really have much, if any, character development or much to say. Or if you did, it often, with the exception of Denzel's backstory, felt very forced. Um, Ethan Hawke's arc particularly felt shoehorned in there to give some last-minute conflict within the group. Yeah, it was that so was,
0: predictable.
1: Yeah, I mean... D- I'm not even going to treat this like a spoiler. Did you think for a for a second that when Ethan Hawke left, that he wasn't going to come back?
0: Oh, it's just it was unquestionable. It, It was, and you're totally right that it felt like it was just thrown in there to try and create some form of last minute tension. Because I don't know about you. But as this movie was moving through its story, when they first get to the town and they have the first gunfight, I actually thought that was the climax of the movie. And I didn't know what the runtime for this film was when I walked into it. So I thought to myself, oh, wow, this is probably going to be a nice, brisk, uh, 110-minute film. No, there's another 20 minutes of story to tell. Uh, in the aftermath of this first gunfight leading up to the final gunfight. Uh, that happened at like an hour, the hour mark, I think. Yeah, this whole storyline with even Hawk is introduced here. Um, Training and, the it, villagers. Yeah. it. Yeah. It, and I just at that point in the movie, I just felt like the pacing just came to a screeching halt for me. Where early on in the first act... I got this feeling that this is everything that Suicide Squad should have been with these character introductions and getting uh, the audiences to understand who these people are before they go on their mission. And I was really, really digging it. I was having a great time watching all this unfold. Um, And then something in that third act, it just really kind of killed the momentum for me that when the final gunfight did happen, I just kept asking myself, man, I feel like it would have been better. If they had the first gunfight, there was really only the seven of them, and then the uh, cavalry came in, and then they had just this seven on, whatever it was, a hundred men or something like that, you know, but
1: I respect the desire to incorporate the town folk and um, give try to give the characters more depth. but i I think part of the problem was, yeah, you're right. It did kind of just bring the momentum to a screeching halt. But also, what was done to develop the characters? Well, there wasn't that much to it. Like the character development was pretty much them sitting around and broing out over beans or alcohol repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And some of those scenes were really entertaining, and then some of them I thought definitely could have excised and cut out ten minutes from the film. Yeah. Um, I, I think someone referred to it as Nick Pizzolatto's broetry. <laughs> um Yeah. So I I'm conflicted on those, but I think you're right. Like that, that middle part, some of which I enjoyed really derailed the momentum. That first shootout though I should mention, I really liked. The build-up to it, they were definitely doing a clear good, the bad, and the ugly reference where they do the thing where you're cutting back and forth to each of the people's faces yeah. leading up to the gunshot, and each shot gets a little bit shorter and shorter and shorter so you're on the edge of your seat when they finally fire. Um, and, then, and then the subsequent fight just was excessive, albeit entertaining. But I thought that lead-up
0: to that first gunfight was pretty well executed. Did you feel that the film was overly violent for a PG-13 film? I've heard a couple people complain about this.
1: It was definitely on the violent end for a PG-13, for sure. Um, The bottom line is a lot of that was due to the sound effects, and there's not a lot of blood on display. And I think... oh, I mean, this is interesting, because on one hand, that makes it kind of um, no-consequence violence, Um, I, you know, though, I'm going to say in an age where most action films have massive body counts and show few to no consequences happening to the characters who do the violence, uh, although the film never tries to say, Anything other than that violence is righteous, I will say it shows in the case of since a lot of characters don't make it, that there are consequences to participating in violence. And that's something you can't say that uh, a lot of the other major studio action films offer these days. So it was violent. I don't think excessively so for PG-13. Yeah,
0: I'm with you on that. If you don't see the blood and guts pouring out of the person, then... I don't think it's warrant for a rated R rating, personally. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't see why everybody's making a big fuss about it. I, I think it's totally fine the way it is. With that said, uh, let's just get into now our final thoughts and our grade for the film out of 10. Uh, so, Will, final thoughts on The Magnificent Seven 2016 remake, final grade, and where does it rank for you with Seven Samurai, the original Magnificent Seven, and this? Um I'll I'll will g- give it a 6.5. I
1: I enjoyed it. You know, it, I don't think it was a great film, but for a lot of it I definitely had fun. And that's more than I can say for a lot of the films I've seen this year, particularly a lot of action films I've seen this year. So, yeah, 6.5 and it doesn't hold a candle to the two films it's coming after, but to its credit, I don't think it's trying to. It's not trying to have much of a a statement. So I I don't think
0: that's really a mark against it, that it doesn't hold a candle to them. I agree with you in the sense that it doesn't hold a candle to the other two films. But something tells me I will be watching this film again sometime soon, uh, more likely than the other ones. I don't know why that is. I think maybe just because I want to go back to that sense of fun that I got from this. This this very much felt like the final summer blockbuster of the year for me. In that now moving forward, we're going to get all these serious, overly dramatic films uh, as we get into Oscar season. More so here, and this film feels very much like just sit back, enjoy your popcorn, have some fun. And, and that's what I got at it. Is. I laughed a couple of times. Um, I laughed uncomfortably a couple of times. Um, I also cringed uh, many times as well. It was dumb, stupid, fun, the way that a summer blockbuster film should be. It didn't require me to turn on my brain that much, and that was okay, I was very, very okay with that, I think that the scenes that, uh, from the character introductions to the gun shootouts, I think they did them fairly well, and performances are a mixed bag, I don't like the look of the film, score is not really particularly memorable, I can name all these faults that I have with the film, but at the end of the day, if I walk away from that movie having a blast, uh, you're gonna get an okay rating from me, I will say this, in the last couple weeks, I've seen The Light Between Oceans. Sully, Snowden, Uh, this is the most fun I've had at the movies uh, watching a film of all of those films I just listed there. So for that reason alone, I'm going to grade this a little bit higher and I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10. Shocker, I know. So with that said, uh, we've got... A couple of really cool things uh, coming over to nextbestpicture.com that I am currently working on. I want to just ask you guys to be patient as more content does come over to the site. We have an early review of Deepwater Horizon that is posted there right now, which we will all be talking about on next week's show. A couple of our blog posts are coming along as well. And of course, more award season talk as we head into the New York Film Festival. Will, do you have anything that you want to say out to our listeners? Got nothing else. It was a good week. Enjoy. All righty. Sounds good to me. Will, you take care. Everybody, thank you for listening to the next Best Picture Podcast. I'm your host, Matt McGill, and I will see you all next time.